right? Because the organization that isn't changing is not, in fact, growing. And organizations that are not growing are not inhaling and exhaling. They're not breathing. Yep. They're dead. 100%. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt, one of the partners here at Reboot. What do you do when something goes wrong? Do you freak out? Do you take it personally? Do you look for solutions? Do you look for someone to blame? I had a moment like this a few months ago. For those who listen to the podcast regularly, you've probably heard about our Reboot Circles, which are facilitated peer coaching groups. And I've had the pleasure of developing these with my colleague, Andy Christinger, and I'm really proud of the spaces we've been able to create in a very short period of time. But things have and do go wrong. A few months ago, a member in one of our groups decided it was time for them to leave. My first reaction, it was like a punch in the gut. My second reaction, I went looking for someone to blame, which for me is almost always me. It doesn't matter how much effort or creativity it takes. I can almost always find a reason why I should be the one at fault. And this case was no different. Instead of looking for more answers or trying to understand the situation better, I immediately sulked and soaked in the self-shame. But why the rush to assign the blame? There's something calming about finding a target. It's like in this moment of being lost in a rough sea of chaos and uncertainty, a person to assign the fault is like an unsinkable lifeboat to grasp. We climb aboard and take a deep breath and relax. Ah, that's solved. We do this as individuals, we do it as organizations, we do it as a society. But what incredibly valuable opportunities lie in resisting this urge to assign fault? What might we learn and what didn't or did work if we explore a bit more? Jerry is joined today by author and CTO Dave Zweibach to talk about just that. Dave, in his book, Beyond Blame, explores the fallacy of blame and how it fails to identify the immense complexity and interdependency of the world around us and identifies the real cost in both wins and losses. You might just find that often blame prevents us from doing the very thing we want the most, to learn and to grow. A quick note. This conversation was originally recorded back in November, so you will hear a few mentions of events specific to that time, like the uh, Paris attacks. The way to start would be, first, when we feel the tendency to blame, to try and get in touch with what it feels like to be holding on to ourselves so tightly. What does it feel like to blame? How does it feel to reject? What does it feel like to hate? What does it feel like to be righteously indignant? Pema Children. Hey, Dave. It's really great to see you, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Hi, Jerry. Really awesome to be here. Before we get started, why don't you just take a moment and, and tell us who you are and and I'll talk a little bit about uh, why I'm excited to have you on. Uh, sure. So let's see. Um, 
I've been sort of working with large-scale systems and teams for about two decades, a little bit less than that, um, and most of it in finance. Um, and I had a couple of startups along the way, and more, more recently in the last about five years, I've sort of switched from finance to the startup world, and I'm, I'm uh, very happy about that. As far as the book is concerned, I'm not sure. If uh, I'm- yeah, well, let's, you know, so, so part of the reason we, we thought about having you on is uh, you've got a new book coming out uh, called Beyond Blame, and I'd love you to tell us a little bit about that. But before you even go forward, um, you know, doing an interview with an author is something I've not done before. Um, I've interviewed and worked with and had conversations with people who have written books, but not specifically about books before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've gotten enough of an audience right now that people are sort of reaching out and saying, hey, I've got a new book coming out. And I generally don't do those things. But I want to talk a little bit about this book um, in the context. And I think there's a relevancy here mm-hmm. um, for the kinds of topics that we talk about. But tell us a little bit about the book. The book is called Beyond Blame. Yep. And the subtitle is Learning from Failure and Success. Mm-hmm. And really... So it's a, it's a short book. It's a, it's a book in the style of, you know, the five dysfunctions of the team. So it's a f- book of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most common pieces of feedback that I've gotten about the book is that it feels very familiar mm-hmm. to many of the folks that have worked in similar environments. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the behaviors that are in the book um, are, are default behaviors with respect mm-hmm. to kind of, especially with respect to learning or dealing with failure. Um, and so the names have been changed to protect the innocent, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, the fact that this book takes place uh, in a financial institution um, is, uh, is no uh, accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it's a very personal book for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've through my throughout my career, I've sort of witnessed and been part and been part of, you know, kind of by virtue of my work, um, a lot of fairly significant uh, failures mm-hmm. in uh, you know in the, in the environments where I worked, and what always struck me after some time of seeing these kind of patterns of blame, mm-hmm. let's say happen again and again. And by the way, when we talk about blame, we have to talk about the, the opposite of blame, which is uh, praise or, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it roughly goes like this, you know. Something happens, and if it's something... Failure, failure. Failure. Something, uh-huh. Well, it could also be success. Uh-huh, okay. Right? And so then what we do is we want to construct uh, a story about, well, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. And in both cases, actually, both the case of success and failure, we get to the person mm. or people who did something or maybe didn't do something mm. pretty quickly, mm-hmm. right? So in the case of a failure, oh, who fucked up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once we find that person, we immediately feel a sense of, like, relief yeah. or cognitive ease. This is what mm-hmm. Dan- Daniel Kahneman who studies these things, calls it. Um, it's like, yeah, 
we got the guy or girl. Right. We got them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then if it's a failure, then we know what to do, right? Depending on how bad the failure is or was, mm-hmm. we punish. Sometimes we fire, reprimand, dock the bonus, whatever. There's many different uh, kind of punitive measures that we mm-hmm. can take. And similarly, when things go well, we reward, we promote, give them the bonus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so after seeing this kind of play out again and again, what started to kind of strike me is that these stories that we construct, mm. comfortable as, as they might be, they're so simplistic. The story of what happened coming from a blame perspective. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the blame, basically what happens there is it's, it's kind of a short circuit. Mm-hmm. The moment we get to this comfortable story mm-hmm. of basically who did, who did it. Right. Who's the bad guy? Who's the bad guy, right? Then we're like, okay, that's it. We're done. Then we don't have to inquire anymore. We get to move on. We go back to our work. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I just want to jump in it for, mm-hmm. for a moment here. I first became really acutely aware of this as a methodology of inquiry um, by working with my friends at Etsy. Mm-hmm. And we have a mutual friend in John Allspar, who's now the chief technology officer. Mm-hmm. And I began seeing what they now refer to as retrospectives, but uh, and you know what are commonly known as postmortems, but but added to that this notion of a blameless postmortem. Mm-hmm. And and you know, we should we just just to establish it, a blameless retrospective is, if I've got this right, an inquiry into what happened. Let's mm-hmm. leave aside for a moment whether it was a failure or a success. Mm-hmm. An inquiry into what was what happened, not designed to find fault, but to understand and learn. Am I, have I got that right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So whereas the point of a traditional postmortem or retrospective might be exactly to find who's at fault, mm-hmm. the point of the blameless postmortem or they're, they're known as learning reviews or, you know, Richard, there's many different uh, sort of names for that, for that phenomena. Um, the point is to learn. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, we're, there's something else, right? We usually, when we go into these things, we're always looking for the root cause. Mm-hmm. One simple root cause mm-hmm. that we can, you know, fix. You know, and mm-hmm. sometimes it becomes the person, right? We found mm-hmm. the root cause. It's, it's Bobby or Sue or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where it starts to break down is the, the reality is there's, there's, no, there's no single root cause, it's far, far more complex than that. Why do we want to find a root cause? You know, especially as engineers, um, so I'm going to kind of put my engineering hat yeah. on, right? There's, there's, I mean, generally there's a comfort in that. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a root cause, and usually it's something that we, you know, something that we can do something about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, if we take a more realistic approach, mm-hmm. we find a bunch of conditions. Um, and a lot of times, there's not a, not a whole lot we can do about them. 
I, I have to tell you, you know, we're sitting here and we're, we're, we're just a few days after, who knows when we'll, we'll broadcast this, but we're just a few days after um, the horrific events in Paris and Beirut mm-hmm. last week. And, you know, there's this seemingly, you know, deep challenge around, you know, uh, a fundamentalist view of the world in which there are bad guys and good guys. And if we just find the bad guys and get rid of the bad guys, then our problems go away. And so I'm sitting here on with a lot of frustration at the lack of nuance and understanding. Yep. And that 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 the root cause, if you will, to turn the phrase on its head, is really not a single person or a single point of view or a single ideology as much as it is a uh, the belief that there's a root cause. Yeah. Right, that there isn't a connectedness to all of these things. Um, am, am, am I seeing this correctly? Um, very much so. So this is sort of how we're wired on some level, mm-hmm. right? And especially in times of stress, mm-hmm. we very much go there. It's like, don't give me the nuanced story. I just want to know who did this and whom can I basically bomb into right. oblivion. Or whom can I hold accountable? Right. Or, you bring up that word accountable, huh? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know that, you know, having read the book, it's, you know, you, you play a lot with this notion of, quote, accountability. Tell me, tell me about accountability and the relationship to, to a blaming culture versus a blameless approach to leadership. Yeah. So the traditional default definition of accountability um, I think basically translates to whose throat am I going to choke when things go bad? Also, who am I going to kind of promote and cetera and reward when things go correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a largely kind of unexamined notion because uh, both the failures and successes, as I mentioned before, they don't really rest or rely on with a single individual. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Uh, so in the default or the old way of thinking about accountability, um, accountability has the root account, mm-hmm. right? And so just like a bank account, uh, in the old view, accountability, an account is something that you settle. So you fucked up, you pay the price. Mm. Um, there's another view, and it comes to us from sort of restorative justice, mm. um, where an account in the context of, account- of accountability is something that you provide. Mm. You tell a full account, a full story of what happened. Mm. Why? Two reasons. One is so that we can learn. And two, so that the community sort of surrounding this individual uh, can be sort of restored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the restorative aspect to restorative mm-hmm. justice. And so restorative justice, as, as you probably know, comes from, you know, this, this is not the first year. This is not a new concept. Right. right. It's, been, it's been used in South Africa and other places. Right. In, in the truth and reconciliation movement post-apartheid, the notion of restorative justice was a profoundly healing process, not merely uh, the inquiry process. 
Yeah. But it was, it, you know, it's, it's a notion of, of recognizing that pain and suffering occur or, you know, to, to bring it back into, into this, you know, organizational inquiry for a moment, recognizing that failures occur. But in addition to failure, there's also pain and suffering that occurs with that failure. And the application of a restorative justice approach to leadership is really fascinating. Say more. So it it is, I would say, very much about healing. Um, And not only healing of the folks that had been wronged, you know, that had suffered negative uh, sort of consequences of a particular action, um, but also of the people who, you might say, are responsible mm-hmm. for, for these actions. Mm-hmm. So all these notions, as you mentioned, right, John Allspy is sort of the, the gentleman who's brought a lot of these uh, concepts into our world of large-scale computer systems. But he's bringing that from the folks that have been studying human factors and organizational psychology and, uh, uh, you know, uh, resilience engineering, complexity science, and all that, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and so in the safety kind of uh, sciences, if you wish, uh, there's this concept of a second victim. So when that train c- collides and a bunch of people die, there's the first victim which are the people that die or get hurt as a, as a result of this train wreck. Mm-hmm. And there's a second victim, which is usually the driver of the train, the pilot, mm-hmm. the person who took the system down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of situations where those folks descend into kind of deep, deep depression, suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, that self-blame mm-hmm. kind of goes on as much as being blamed by others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in many ways can actually be even more kind of serious, mm-hmm. right, emotionally. And so the healing that we're talking about through restorative justice, right, it happens not only on a, on a community level, right, community being the people that are affected mm-hmm. by some kind of an outcome, but also um, on an individual level, the person who is uh, supposedly responsible for this. You know, the, you know, I listen to your podcast and, you know, I hear a lot of leaders and startups, uh, you know, talk about this and, and it really kind of resonates with me, right? Because as, as CEO of a company, somebody who's responsible for, you know, the outcome of this venture, right? Responsible to uh, all the VCs and all the people that work in, in this kind of, in, 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 in the startup, right? Their careers, their livelihoods are on, on the line. Right. Um, whenever something goes wrong, that element of self-blame, right, is so is so present. You know, I've noticed that a lot. Yeah, I, I I think you're absolutely right. I think it's uh, you know we've often on the show and and whether it's in our boot camps or even in individual cl- uh, client sessions with some of the reboot coaches, we 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 almost always end up talking about failure and fear of failure. Mm. And one of the more important techniques that, that I will use with somebody is I will ask them to go there and really imagine the worst consequences of that failure. Mm. 
And it almost always ends with them. And we joke, you know, homeless and penniless and the laughing stock of Stockholm. Um, and that because it's something a client once said to me because um, um, he's originally from Stockholm. <laughs> and and the notion of, of humiliation and, and shame, because shame is very much part of that self-blame, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And and so when we think about some of the struggles that 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 are so dominant in the startup community, so much is on the line for people. There's so, so much of a sense of failing, of fear of failing, that it that ironically we exacerbate a blame culture because ultimately, if I'm worried about shame then I am taking on the responsibility for the failure, even if there's a complex system that failed, even if it's a nuanced system of failing. Yep. And so inherent in the notion of beyond blame is not only, um, in my view, not only the promise of an inquiry process into what's working and what's not working, that is true and honest, but also releasing from that self-blame and potentially the fear of shame. Yeah. Does this land for you? Yeah. Um, I think I think you hit a very non-obvious nail on the head. Mm. Um, it kind of, for me, gets to this notion of how much control we think we have over our own, mm-hmm. you know, lives and, you know, our circumstances. And in order to survive in a, in a, in a world where, like, realistically, we don't have any control. Mm-hmm. Like, sorry, bad mm-hmm. news. But in order to survive and function in a kind of, uh, you know, hopeless Mm-hmm. Um, world, um, we have to tell ourselves these stories, mm-hmm. you know? Um, a yeah. story that we actually have control. Yeah. Or a story that things are certainly uh, highly dependent upon us yep. as opposed to being interdependent and interconnected with all these other yeah. uh, pieces. And, we t- and the thing is, the success stories are just mirror images of the failure stories. Right? Oh, you know, uh, so-and-so founded a company that's now valued at a billion dollars. Right. The unicorn. The mythic the u- unicorn. Right? So then it's like, wow. You know, there's something special about that person. Right. You know? They're smarter than the rest of us. Exactly. They work harder. Right? This is where all the case study stuff starts to mm-hmm. totally break down. Because, like, you know, all those founders of, you know, those unicorns, right, they do things in particular ways. I doubt that there's actually a lot in common, but anyway, if you look, you can probably find. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you might be able to find is that they all have regular bowel movements. (laughs) Right. Shocking, huh? Right? And so then, as a consultant, your recommendation, based on the case study of 100 or, you know, 10 unicorn companies, is that your CEO should have a, you know, a diet rich in uh, fiber, fiber, you know? Right. And it's like, and that will help you, you know. And, and so 
there's a whole kind of, as, as you know, uh, sort of genre of like people talking about the things that they think contribute to their success or to, to the failures, mm-hmm. right? Myth-making, storytelling, mm-hmm. sense-making, yes. Is it reality? I think reality is a lot more complex and nuanced than that. Right. You know? Now, this is, you know, 2,500 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the historical Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni, uh, he was talking about all this. Mm-hmm. You know, he was talking about complexity and the way that he talked about it was, you know, interdependence. Right. Right? This inability, unless you reach Buddhahood, you know, enlightenment, Mm -hmm. this inability to really know, Mm -hmm. like, how things manifest. What are the the causes and conditions, as, as, Mm -hmm. as, you know, he talks about, that are necessary for a particular outcome. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, The Buddha talked about impermanence. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, which, by the way, if you we're looking for the root cause of anything, it's impermanence. Both of functioning and malfunctioning complex systems. It mm-hmm. is the fact that things are changeable, mm-hmm. right? So this is like not new, mm-hmm. and I think that you know because we're able to construct these systems and companies of such immense complexity and scale mm. so quickly, um, then that's kind of bringing all those things that, you know, the Buddha has talked about 2,500 years ago kind of more into sharp focus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Because if, if you're just, you know, if you, you built your little hut somewhere out there, you know, and all you really have to worry about is, you know, your five acres or whatever it is that you lived on, uh, you could sort of get away with a very simplistic understanding of how things work in the world. Mm-hmm. When you build, you know, a system that's 100,000 computers or a million computers, you know, that a billion people use, you, you can't get away with this. You cannot actually operate that system without coming like in like face-to-face with complexity, mm-hmm. impermanence, you know, interdependence, all those things. Well, I, 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 I think you're right. And, you know, we both share a, a uh, fascination with the study of the Dharma. Um, some of the things that you speak about in the book that really struck me, and I'm smiling as I say this, um, because I recognize it, right? And, and, and that is that, that not only do I think that so much of the challenge of managing and leading within our, our complex, interdependent, nuanced environment, not only is that complicated by the notion that there is, uh, uh, that, that, that change in impermanence is not the norm, right? Change in impermanence are the norm. But you have a line in here that, that, I, that really struck me. You said any system that's functioning is, in fact, changing. Yeah. And, you know, the the blame seeking leadership mentality, I believe, is rooted in a few fallacies, one of which is 
that there is some nirvana state in which organizations are not changing. Yeah. Okay. And there is that state. You know what that state is? It's called the dead organization. Yep. The one that no longer exists. Right? And just like uncertainty is an expression of life itself, even though uncertainty creates anxiety and challenge for us, change and its consequences of success and failure, because that's what change does, yep. right? It creates surprises, pleasant surprises and unpleasant surprises. Change is a byproduct of aliveness within the organization. Right? Because the organization that isn't changing is not, in fact, growing. And organizations that are not growing are not inhaling and exhaling. They're not breathing. Yep. They're dead. 100%. And, you know, the very reason that you might start a company is mm-hmm. because you want to change something. Because there's some, you know, something that you're unsatisfied with or something that bothers you. And you, want, you see a better world. And so... Even in that, like, it's inherent, right? Sort of like it's in there. What's in there? Well, in order to get there, it requires change. Yes. And it also requires a belief in the fact that these things are changeable. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's there. This, mm-hmm. this, this kind of understanding that, like, uh, I don't know. I, like, I'm going to try. I don't know if I'm going to succeed. But I think this thing can work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just we forget, again, kind of how, like, it, blame, I think you, you're, you're quite right. It kind of has this freezing effect, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that anxiety has, yeah. has that kind of, like, yeah. it freezes things and they feel immovable and static and dead. And so I guess the leadership challenge is just like one teaching is learning to be comfortable with uncertainty, the leadership challenge is, is to go beyond blame, yeah. quote your book, to get to a point of not acceptance of, of mistakes, but, but the use of mistakes, the use of failure, the use of un. Uh, unpleasant surprises, if you will, mm-hmm. as an opportunity to uh, really examine root assumptions and core beliefs and see what needs to be changed and altered to accommodate a new belief system. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a wake-up call. You get a little bell, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, here, take a look at me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, some, there's something here for you. Uh, probably, you know, a gift, a present. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly an opportunity for growth. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's painful also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it also requires time and it requires patience. Mm-hmm. Um, two things that often seem in short supply in the startup world. Yeah, well... We're, we're busy, um, and the, the question is always, are we busy with the right things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And to me, you know, when, when I, 
when I do this work, when I talk to folks, and I, and I, and I talk to all, uh, folks um, at a lot of different organizations about this thing about blame, um, the first thing that strikes me is how unaware most of the time we are that it's actually there. Mm. That, you know? that the blame is implicit, even if it's not explicit. Yeah. Like how much blame there is in our organizations and in, 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 in our lives, you know, personal lives also. And like if, if you approach a random person on the street, you know, and you ask them like, is there any blame in your organization? Chances are they will say no, of course not. But then when you actually sit with them and you talk with them for a little while and you start to discover that, you know, the behaviors that they, um, you know, do mm. uh, to save themselves from being blamed, mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. shame, mm-hmm. right? And they do this on a personal level. They do this on an organizational level. Um, how much blaming we actually do as individuals, right? Even... Um, towards the ones that we love the most, mm-hmm. you know, our family, our friends, right? Um, you, you start to see that it's, it's, it's like it's so endemic. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like, <laughs> we don't, I don't want to like, I don't want us to blame ourselves for, for being blameful, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, because that's mm-hmm. kind of, I think, part of a human condition. We need to just own it. And um, by becoming aware of it, Mm-hmm. we actually have a chance of doing something different with it. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of something of, uh, that uh, I heard attributed to Chogum Trumper Rinpoche, um, one of my Buddhist teachers. And he said, uh, pain is just pain. Pain is not punishment and pleasure is not a reward. Pain is just pain and pleasure is just pleasure. And if you play with that quote a little bit, you, you get to the heart of, I think, the blame-seeking mentality, both when I'm seeking to blame myself and when I'm seeking to blame others. Mm. Something is wrong, so therefore somebody has to be wrong. Yeah. When I think the observation that he made was sometimes things are just don't go right. And actually, it's more helpful to understand what happened than it is to actually seek to figure out who did it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's, a, there's another Buddhist story that comes to mind, which is uh, a man is shot in the chest with a poisoned arrow. And the response is not, who shot that arrow? Why did he shoot that arrow? Yeah. Right? The first response is, take the damn arrow out of his chest. Yeah. Right? Close up the wound. And then we'll sort through what happened. You know, and I think too often in our organizations, we ignore the poisoned arrow in the chest and we go after the person that we think shot the arrow. And then two people die. And then two people die. That's right. That's right. That's right. So last question, Dave. You know, as I, as I said to you even before, one of the questions, one of the things that I like to, to really explore is why we do what we do. Why did you write this book? Why is this so important to you? Um, it's very deeply personal um, for me. Um, my background is, you know, I was born in, uh, and raised in uh, Russia. Hmm. And uh, that is what you might call not a blameless 
culture. Yeah. Um, so, in, in fact, I think uh, I, I don't want to let my fellow countrymen down. I think uh, the Russians, we take blame to some incredible heights. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, why do something half-assedly, right? Like, right. <laughs> if you can really take it to the next level. So, um, so there's that. And also, I mean, I, I can just give you a kind of a story from, from my life. I, I have two kids, um, you know, and one of them is uh, eight years old now. And, uh, you know, initially, um, you know, we sort of discovered that what you might call he wasn't very good at math. Mm-hmm. So we had that belief. And it's a very, you know, it's a blameful statement, right? Mm-hmm. It's like here we have, we've attached something very solid to uh, his personality. Mm. Okay. And so I lived in that world for a little while. And then because I was doing all this work and writing the book and, and mm. you know, we also have a workshop that kind of um, teaches a lot of these concepts, I started to see that, okay, that's an interesting story. Mm. But the reality, again, is much more nuanced and complex. There's something in the system within which uh, my son is operating and learning math, mm. which includes me, includes my wife, includes his school, mm. and it does include him, of course. Mm-hmm. But there's something that's not working. Mm. And yeah, this approach might work for you know 99% of other kids, but it's not working for him. Mm. And I recognize that like he's not showing up to, you know, when we sit down and try to do the homework, he's not showing up, like, trying to figure out, like, how he can screw me mm-hmm. and how he can make me mad and upset about the fact that he's not getting it. He's mm-hmm. really showing up in good faith, what we might call, and really trying to do it. And he can't. He's frustrated. You know, and at some point when, when I actually recognized, when I saw this, mm-hmm. that the story that I was constructing about him mm-hmm. was just that. It was just a story. It wasn't actually true. Mm-hmm. You know, it really helped me break through um, and develop much more patience mm-hmm. and to start to really kind of seek out different ways. Okay, well, maybe it didn't work this way. Well, let me try a different way to teach mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's had such a kind of profound effect on, I think, our relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and... So, so for me, as I said, this is very personal. It's not just about organizational level or, you know, learning from failure and success and so on. I mean, th- those are, of course, important. But I, this stuff um, is endemic in our, in our lives, in our relationships. What's your son's name? Zach. In, in the story you tell about Zach, what occurs to me is that, well, I relate as a parent because I can imagine blaming myself for my child's brokenness mm. in their inability to learn the subject. Yes. And in that feeling, um, I recognize that, you know, when you speak about math, it, it recalls for me that I struggled with math in eighth grade after doing very, very well um, and really feeling lost and broken as a result of that. And so I created a limiting belief within myself that said I was not good at. And I think that the shift that occurred for you, I imagine 
may be giving Zach the space to simply be Zach. Yep. And not live up to your expectations about his own performance in math simply by removing the seeking of blame from the situation. Mm-hmm. It created this space for him to actually just be a kid who has some skills in some things and, and less skills in other things and maybe need to learn this way versus that way. Yeah. Just like all of us. Yeah, and, and the space, you know, t- to be sort of authentically himself, right, which includes frustration uh, and, you know, sometimes anger at this math thing that's not going so well. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's going, it's going better now. That's the other thing that kind of as a result of, like, that space... Right. We start to re-examine this belief that which felt so solid and immovable before. Yeah. That yeah. like, oh, Zach isn't good at math. Actually, no, not at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it's a it's a beautiful connecting point because you know as I, as we often say, like you know when when you understand some of the roots, you start to see the broader application of things and. Uh, in this case, I really want to thank you for, for sharing your ideas and, and talking about this. I think that the, the notion of creating blameless or going beyond blame in our, our cultures, just like it did for Zach, creates the opportunity for spaciousness for, for the individuals to show up. Mm. You know, uh, I often use a line when I talk about the work that we do at Reboot, and I say, my wish is to spark a revolution where we create work that is nonviolent to the self, nonviolent to the community, and nonviolent to the planet. Mm. And if we can do those things, then, then we've really gone beyond work in, in, in the old view. And I think a first step in creating that nonviolent organization is to actually remove blame from the process. That's not to say that people who are not doing well in the job should not be approached. That's not what we're talking about. No. We're talking about this notion of moving beyond uh, a simplified, simplistic, fundamentalist view of organizations into a much more complex, nuanced, humanistic view of the way people actually operate. Yeah. And underlying all of this, right, we cannot get there without awareness. Yeah. And so, like, underlying, like, you cannot sort of go beyond blame without awareness. You cannot build nonviolent companies without awareness, right? And so, that's, like, at the end of the day, this is really what we're talking about. Well, that's beautiful. And uh, my last quote, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end it, is to quote my partner, Khaled. Khaled Halim, who likes to say that what we're really about is smuggling in consciousness into organizations. Yep. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dave. It, it's really been a delight to talk to you. And uh, I look forward to hearing reactions to our conversation today. Thank you so much, Jerry. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. 
If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together. How long till my soul gets it right?